Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 475th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to some cemeteries. Woohoo! Supposedly they're haunted. This is Haunted Cemeteries number 25. I can't believe that there's 25 episodes of Haunted Cemeteries. I love it. And I still keep finding them. I mean, I suppose if you go into any cemetery with equipment, you're going to find some kind of spirit bopping around because there's got to be somebody passing through, visiting a loved one or visiting their grave or something. But these are the ones that have some more concrete type stories. We got some interesting stuff for you on this one. Before we get into that, I just want to do a quick comment. You guys have all noticed we've started running automatic ads on the podcast. If you don't hear Kelly and I reading something, it's not endorsed by us. We have not chosen that ad. So we have no control over the automatic ad. So please don't get offended if it's something that you don't like or don't agree with. It's not us. We're just trying to keep the lights on. And what you're hearing is based on your demographic and location. So you're going to hear things that are in your area. So you'll hear commercials that other people don't hear. So hopefully that explains everything. We don't mean to offend anybody. And yet, if you want it ad-free, just join up the Patreon. (laughs) $2 a month, and you can get all of the episodes without ads. Plus, you get a bonus episode every month, too. And at the $5 and above, you get all the bonus casts, the reduxes, everything. We want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Christopher, Valerie, Lisa, Ruben, Sarah with an H, Monica, Stephen with a V, Amy with an I and two E's, and Emma. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Jenny Lynn Rains. Recently, archaeologists in Rome found an ancient statue of a Roman emperor who was dressed to look like the Greco-Roman demigod Hercules. It is assumed that the emperor chose this look for his statue to proclaim his personal beliefs during a time when Christianity was spreading throughout the empire. The emperor in question, Emperor Decius, only ruled for two years between 249 and 251 AD, which is when he was killed by the Goths during the Battle of Abertus. 
It's said that the statue was found near the Via Appia and had most likely been placed in the trench sewers at some point in the last 100 years. The statue features Dacius wearing the skin of a Nemean lion, which is an animal that was killed by Hercules as part of the 12 labors that he was to carry out. When the archaeologists examined the statue, they determined that the facial features were not that of Hercules, but had the features of Emperor Gaius Messius Quintus Trajanus Decius, and by cloaking his statue in such a manner, represented his religious beliefs, stressing the importance of Rome's relationship with the traditional worship of the gods. One thing is for sure, however, finding a statue of a Roman emperor from almost 1,775 years ago in a sewer certainly is odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> and now this month in history... In the month of February, on the 13th in 1891, American artist Grant Wood was born in Anamosa, Iowa. Ironically, Wood passed on February 12th in 1942, just one day shy of his 51st birthday. His most well-known piece of art is American Gothic, featuring an aged farmer and his daughter. Grant's dentist, Carl E. Smith, portrays the father and his sister, Nan Wood Graham, stands in as the daughter. The farmhouse in the background was known as the Dibble House at the time. Grant Wood was a trained craftsman, designer, and painter. He studied for a year at the Académie Julian in Paris, France, and then returned to Iowa. Once back in Iowa, Wood was commissioned to create a stained glass window, and with little knowledge of the creation of stained glass, he traveled to Germany for assistance. His artistic works continued to evolve, and in 1930, his American Gothic piece caused a sensation when it was exhibited at the Art Institute of Chicago. This was a new direction for American art, featuring an honest, direct, and earthy quality of subjects. Grant Wood's musings on the interpretation of the painting have not been straightforward, leading to ambiguity of its meaning. The piece of art has led to tropes and parodies in popular culture, including advertisements, television shows, and even the political arena. The final destination for most on this earthly plane is a graveyard. As a society, we have given this final end in the cemetery a variety of slang terms like taking a dirt nap, six feet under, pushing up daisies, bought the farm, permanent address, deep sixed, and the list goes on. While some of our language may downplay death, cemeteries can be more sobering while putting on display the many traditions connected to burial practices and our efforts to remember and memorialize the dead. So we have fun, and we have serious, but we also have spooky connected to some cemeteries. On this Haunted Cemeteries episode, we will feature cemeteries in Massachusetts, Mississippi, Michigan, and Illinois. The living come with grassy tread to read the gravestones on the hill. The graveyard draws the living still, but never any more the dead. 
The verses in it say and say, the ones who living come today, to read the stones and go away, tomorrow dead will come to stay. So sure of death the marbles rhyme, yet can't help mocking all the time, how no one dead will seem to come. What is it men are shrinking from? It would be easy to be clever and tell the stones. Men hate to die, and have stopped dying now forever. I think they would believe the lie. In a disused graveyard by Robert Frost. Before jumping into these haunted cemeteries, let's talk about some great news out of Ivy Hill Cemetery near Philadelphia. Kelly, you've ever heard the story about the boy in the box? Yes, I have. Anybody who's a true crime enthusiast has definitely heard this story. The mystery of the boy in the box has been solved after 65 years, and the greatest part of this story is that he has now been given a proper headstone with his real name, and that's what we love about cemeteries. He had been known as America's unknown child and was buried at Ivy Hill Cemetery in East Mount Airy near Philadelphia under a headstone that held that statement. The story goes back to 1957 when a man who was checking muskrat traps stumbled across a cardboard box that held the body of a naked boy who appeared to be between four and six years old. He had signs of malnutrition and abuse and his hair was crudely cut close to his scalp. The Philly police opened an investigation and took the boy's fingerprints. The body was dressed and postmortem pictures were taken and the images were distributed on 400,000 flyers. But the boy was not identified and so he was buried in a potter's field. In 1998, he was exhumed and DNA was extracted from a tooth and he was given the headstone that read America's Unknown Child at that time. In March 2016, his DNA was added to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and a forensic facial reconstruction was done. More DNA was collected in 2019 during a second exhumation. Finally, on November 30, 2022, the Philadelphia Police Department announced that they had an identity, which was developed via forensic genetic genealogy. The boy was connected to a cousin's DNA, and investigators identified the boy's parents through his birth records. They announced his identity as four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Joseph would have been 70 years old on January 13, 2023, and on that date, he was given the gift of a new headstone with his name and image. Yeah, so I just thought that is such wonderful news to share with everybody. Just love to hear that somebody finally has their name, and we'll never know what happened to him. Clearly, he came to a not-so-good end, and I don't know why. He was just put in a cardboard box and kind of left like trash. But now he has a wonderful little area and it has both of his headstones there. So they still have America's Unknown Child there. But then they have that new one. And it's got his name and his face and everything on it. So, yeah, what happened to him is absolutely horrifying just to be left in that manner. But he certainly had, I'd say, millions, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people caring about him. Sure. So. People have been coming for decades to leave things at his headstone. All right, so our first haunted cemetery here is Burial Hill Cemetery. And Kelly, this is actually one that I've been to. It's very cool. This is in Plymouth, Massachusetts. 
And as you go up this street, it's kind of at the end of this cul-de-sac. So it's like at the end of the street. And then they have all these stairs. It's a lot of stairs leading up into the cemetery because it literally is on a hill. This had once had a fort atop it dating back to 1622. And it makes sense because that's where they would want to put their fort so that they could see for vast distances. The fort doubled as a meeting house and the first parish church until 1677. The first mention of this spot as a cemetery was in 1698. This old burying ground is a veritable history of the area with early settlers of Plymouth Colony, which includes William Bradford and William and Mary Brewster, veterans of the Revolutionary War and sea captains. This whole area was just full of sea captains. For those of you who are executive producers, you got to hear the most recent bonus cast, which is about three of these sea captains' homes that are there near Cape Cod that are haunted, apparently. Pierpont wrote of the cemetery, The Pilgrim Fathers are at rest when summer's throned on high and the world's warm breast is in verdue dressed. Go, stand on the hill where they lie. The earliest ray of the golden day on that hallowed spot is cast, and the evening sun, as he leaves the world, looks kindly on that spot last. The earliest burial that still remains is for Edward Gray in 1681, who was the wealthiest merchant in the colony. But there were more than likely earlier burials. Many early plots would have been marked with wood, so of course we can't find them anymore. Considering the age of this cemetery, it's surprising how many elaborate memorials are here. Remember that ship? Kelly, that we talked about that was captained by Brigadier General Arnold and a bunch of the crew froze to death right off of Duxbury? I do. Those crew members are buried here together under an obelisk. So they just did kind of a mass burial for all of them there. See how these things all just kind of come together? Synchronicity. (laughs) The last burial was in 1957. I was actually surprised that they were still doing burials that close to our present time. Must be a very large cemetery. It is pretty big. Now, some people are probably wondering, were the original pilgrims here? Those original pilgrims are buried in the first cemetery here at Coal Hill. They weren't really marked, and they started doing some excavating there, and were finding all these bones and stuff. So it's believed many were dug up, and they put them in a sarcophagus, and then reburied them on the hill, kind of close to where they were found. Those disquieted spirits had haunted a wax museum that was once on Coal Hill. See why? They're like, wait a minute, why'd you dig us up? So much for resting in peace. Thomas Southward Howland is buried here, and according to a legend, he got in a scuffle with a woman thought to be a witch named Mother Crew. She was squatting on his property without permission, and when he kicked her off, she cursed him, saying, Make your peace, because you will not live to see another sunset. They'll dig your grave on Burial Hill. The next day, he fell from his horse and died. So we sit there and say, I don't think any of these people that they accused of being a witch really were. But I don't know. Something she said did something to him. Maybe it was a mental thing. I don't know. Many of the early settlers buried at Burial Hill are said to haunt the cemetery. Visitors have reported seeing apparitions wearing clothing from the 1700s and 1800s. They have heard disembodied voices, whispers and footsteps, and EMF detectors go crazy. Batteries drain quickly and electronic devices turn on and off by themselves. Captain James McGee had been on the ill-fated ship where so many crew froze to death, but he actually survived. He had always requested that when he died, he would be buried with the rest of the crew on Burial Hill. It is thought that that didn't happen, and today his apparition roams the cemetery, probably looking for his fellow crew members. The John Carver Inn is just off the cemetery and used to have a house where medical students were staying. It is alleged that they did the occasional grave robbing for bodies to practice on. 
and possibly that's why some spirits are at unrest. And needless to say, the inn also has some haunts related to this activity. Apparently, watch out for Room 309. We're going to stay in Massachusetts and go over to Sagamore Cemetery. This is located at Bourne in Barnstable County, where Sandwich Road and Ben Abbey Road meet. The first burial here took place in 1803 for Tempe Bourne. She was the daughter of Jonathan and Hannah Bourne and was only two years old when she passed. The cemetery was officially incorporated in 1889. There are burials for Civil War soldiers and 29 former sea captains, as well as early settlers in the area like the Keith family, Ellis family, and the Bourne family, for whom the town is named. People have claimed for many years that the cemetery is haunted, including a former sextant named Donald Ellis. There are several spirits here because in 1909, 17 bodies were moved here from the Collins Farm Cemetery and 45 bodies from the Ellis Cemetery due to the construction of the Cape Cod Canal. The caskets were all marked with chalk so that the burials could be identified, but a storm came through and washed away the markings. So officials had to guess who was who, and we can imagine that many bodies are under the wrong markers. Thus, these spirits are restless until the situation is rectified, which of course we know will never happen, unless they disentour them all and test DNA, and you've got to try to find family members in order to do that, so we'll just have a haunted cemetery there. Sexton Ellis felt that Isaac Keith was the main haunt. Keith founded the Keith Car and Manufacturing Company, which was a former railroad car manufacturing company that operated between 1846 and 1928 and employed up to 1,400 people. Keith died in 1900 and his casket is one of those that was moved. Ellis claims that once when he was working in the cemetery in 1998, he felt something that he couldn't see push against his chest. There was then the strong scent of cigar smoke, and despite it being a hot July afternoon, Ellis broke out in goosebumps. He ran away to his truck, and the eerie feeling he had went away. Apparently, Isaac Keith liked a good cigar. Other people have smelled cigar smoke in the cemetery and felt cold spots, and psychics claim that Keith claims to represent all the displaced people in the cemetery. There are some who claim the cigar smoke actually comes from the spirit of William Burgess, who was a sea captain and a heavy cigar smoker. People have also claimed to see the ghost of an 11-year-old girl hovering over her tombstone. The legend with her is that she was forced into an arranged marriage with a man nine years her senior, and that she eventually murdered him and then killed herself sometime in the 1850s. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
Next, we have Rehoboth Village Cemetery, which is located in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, on Bay State Road. So we're staying in Massachusetts. That's three haunted cemeteries in Massachusetts. The cemetery had been the churchyard of the Second Meeting House and was established in 1773. And that's why I love these cemeteries. They are so old. The first burial was for the infant son of Samuel and Lydia Carpenter on August 22, 1774. In 1840, the Meeting House was moved. This is a well-maintained cemetery, but despite its tranquil appearance, it seems to be home to some kind of weird and nasty entity. Charles Turek Robinson writes about this haunting in his 1997 book, True New England Mysteries, Ghosts, Crimes, and Oddities. He interviewed several witnesses to this entity and vetted them thoroughly. And we want to point that out because this is weird. The first witnesses to report this entity were a couple under the pseudonyms Daniel and Barbara. They were visiting a relative's grave in the center of the cemetery when they noticed a person in the southwest rear of the graveyard. This appeared to be an elderly man who had a prominent hooked nose and there was a sneer on his face. He appeared to be praying and then he would start sobbing and then he would switch to laughing. The man unnerved them and that was bad enough, but then he suddenly disappeared and the couple made their way quickly out of the cemetery. Barbara had nightmares after the incident in 1994, and they have never returned. Sisters Lisa and Karen Mackey were visiting the cemetery in August of 1995 to lay flowers at their mother's grave. They were there around four in the afternoon, and the cemetery was empty. They were the only ones there, at least at first. They paid their respects for 20 minutes and then started heading out of the cemetery when they heard a strange noise that sounded like whistling that was erratic and aggressive. They looked in the direction of the sound and saw an elderly man staring at them. Then he started making inappropriate gestures with his hands. Oh, my word. It was then that the ladies noticed that this was no human being. He moved in a strange floating way, and his eyes were black and hollow like black empty sockets. The entity was there for about 30 seconds and then disappeared. They also left the cemetery in haste, and as of several years later, had been unable to return to the cemetery for fear of seeing the phantom again. So, so much for visiting their mom's grave. A woman named Sarah saw this thing in 1996. She was a teacher and visiting the cemetery alone, merely out for a nice walk. She saw an elderly man in the southwestern rear part of the cemetery kneeling and doing his praying and sobbing thing. She decided to offer the man some comfort and headed in his direction. As she got closer, he quickly sprang to his feet in what she described as liquid motion. He then burst into strange laughter and then cursed her. Susan quickly turned around and headed for her car as the thing followed her, yelling, Catherine, Catherine, you bleep. Sarah then started running, and when she got to her car, she turned around to see where the strange man had gone, and she saw that he was back at his spot in the rear of the cemetery. She knew there was no way he could have returned to that spot that quickly, especially since she heard him right behind her almost all the way to her car. She looked over again as she pulled away in her car, and it appeared to her that there was another ghost with the man, and terrifyingly, this was under him as he straddled her and appeared to be beating her. Both vanished right after she saw them. Which I assume, if they had not vanished, she would have been calling the cops, thinking, oh my gosh, there was another woman in there, and he grabbed her. Thank God it wasn't me. But yeah, this thing is just creepy. I wonder if there's a husband and wife buried there, and he was very abusive and evil. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. And they're replaying whatever horrible things he did. And who knows, maybe there was a murder or suicide or something that happened here. Robinson told the Taunton Daily Gazette of another set of sisters that experienced this apparition that manifested in front of the grave of William S. Reynolds. 
He said, what they saw was a man standing right where I am now before this gravestone. They saw a man praying in front of this grave, alternately sobbing and laughing. That was pretty bizarre, and they couldn't figure out why this guy was crying, laughing, muttering, and again, he was in this position of prayer. They then noticed that his clothing was antiquated, and Robinson said, at a certain point, this purported alleged entity perceived their presence. He stood up and looked at them, and he spoke in a voice that sounded unnatural, tinny, like it was coming from some other place. He began cursing them, so they think, okay, this guy is potentially dangerous, we're going to leave. And as they go to leave, he slowly dissipates and vanishes. So if you're ever out at Rehoboth Village Cemetery, don't go alone, definitely. (laughs) Right. I would go during peak visiting hours. All right, let's hit another state here. We're going to head to Mississippi and check out the Old Biloxi Cemetery. Old Biloxi Cemetery is also known as Biloxi City Cemetery and is located at 1166 Irish Hill Drive with over 12,000 burials. The beach and Gulf of Mexico are right off of the cemetery. Sounds like a beautiful spot. The oldest existing tombstone here dates to 1811 and has a French inscription because the occupant was Frenchman Michel Batet. The headstone is partially embedded in a tree stump. The cemetery wasn't deeded to the city until 1844. This is a glorious southern cemetery dripping with Spanish moss and filled with 19th century above-ground monuments and barrel-vaulted crypts. This cemetery has been around for over 300 years and holds many interesting characters. One of these people is Juan de Cuevas, who was known as the hero of Cat Island War of 1812. Juan lived on Cat Island with his family, and they defended their home against the British during the War of 1812. He fired shots at the British fleet in the decisive Battle of New Orleans. There are many other veterans here from various other wars, including Brigadier General Joseph Robert Davis, who was the nephew of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. All right, so let's look at some of these interesting burials here. We've got James Parks Caldwell. He was born in Monroe, Ohio, and became a founding member of the Sigma Chi fraternity at the University of Illinois. He was only 14 at the time. Oh, my gosh. I hope they didn't rush back then. (laughs) (laughs) He went off to Miami University in Ohio and graduated there at 16 and then pursued a law degree and moved to Mississippi to teach. He joined the Confederacy during the Civil War and ended up a prisoner of war. After the war, he was admitted to the bar. He died in 1912. Jean Guihot was known as the Hermit of Deer Island, and Jean ended up a hermit on the island after a hurricane destroyed his home in 1947. He was quite the character. The Frenchman was a former barber and oysterman who apparently had eight wives before becoming a hermit. You could see why he became a hermit if you had eight wives. And he liked to row out to passing boats and serenade them with French folk songs. People would throw him money, which he used to buy the occasional groceries. He died at 81 in 1959. Well, aside from repeatedly having eight wives, he sounded like a nice hermit. (laughs) I know when I first was reading the stuff about him, I'm like, he rode out in a boat, what, to curse people and tell them to get away from his island? Right. (laughs) He was being very inviting. I don't know if he was a good singer, but... Maybe they threw money to make him go away. (laughs) (laughs) Please stop singing. That's what would happen to me. (laughs) Same here. A Brooklyn Daily Eagle article in 1927 was headlined, Women have guided Biloxi Light for over 60 years, and reported, A woman's hand has guided the Biloxi Light to storm-tossed sailors in the Gulf of Mexico for more than 60 years. Among old sailors, there is a superstition of good fortune radiating from Biloxi because the light has never faltered through the fiercest West Indian hurricane. Operations at the lighthouse began in 1848 and the first woman took over in 1854. 
This was Mary Reynolds, and she was followed by Perry Youngins, who died a year after starting. So his widow, Maria Youngins, took over and served for 53 years. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, depending upon the lighthouse, too. Carrying that oil and so forth. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard job for a woman. Her daughter, Miranda, had been her assistant and now took over. Maria and Miranda Youngins are both buried here. I think this is the first lighthouse and maybe the only one that I've heard of that had three women that were lightkeepers there. Walter White was a circuit court judge and he had a wife named Cora. They started the White House Hotel back in the 1890s. And really, it was Cora who started this thing. She started with boarders in their home. And that was really popular. So then she started buying the houses around them as she expanded. This eventually grew to seven Victorian homes. And in 1910, two of the homes were joined to create a lobby, dining room, and ballroom. This is still open today as a boutique hotel. I love that. I know. (laughs) Then there was this place called the Isle of Capri. This opened in 1925 and was known as the Monte Carlo of the South. This was the place to be in the Roaring Twenties. Walter Skeet Hunt was one of three men who built and operated this resort. He also founded the Biloxi Mardi Gras Parade. Very cool. The resort slipped beneath the waves between Horn and Ship Island south of Biloxi in 1931. Skeet passed away in 1961. George Edgar Orr was born in Biloxi in 1857 and was an American ceramic artist who never received the recognition he should have for his art. He was a precursor to the American Abstract Expressionism movement and called himself the Mad Potter of Biloxi. I love that nickname. I do, too. After his death, most of his work sat in a shed behind his son's gas station. This work is now considered groundbreaking with hard-to-replicate thin walls, unique metallic glazes, and twisted shapes. Sounds like a Mad Hatter kind of thing. Yeah, I can see why he called himself the Mad Mad Potter. Potter. He was an eccentric guy who wore his hair and beard in a way that made him look like he was in a windstorm with the hair blowing to the side. I will put a picture of him up on Instagram. It is very interesting. He's definitely a character. And I've seen that picture before. I I don't know in what context, but I do remember seeing him. That's amazing. Yeah, I've seen that one too, actually. (laughs) So, but in his time, people didn't even know who he was, really. He died in 1918 at the age of 60. And then there was the man we have to thank for Barks Root Beer. Yay, I love root beer and I love Barks. I love Barks. It has a bite. Yeah. Edward Bark. Bark was born in 1871 and traveled to France to study soft drink formulation. He built his Biloxi Artesian Bottle Works in 1898. He experimented with various formulas for soft drinks and eventually came up with his namesake root beer. I had no idea it was around for that long. It's funny because that was my favorite root beer in California, but that didn't come around that I knew of until after I was a child because my mom would only let me have root beer and mm-hmm. it was A&W. And to be honest, I'm not a huge fan, but I love Barks. <laughs> you know, it might be because it wasn't bought until you're going to tell people this in a minute, Coca-Cola in the 90s. So it ah. probably didn't have vast distribution as much until then. I suppose so. The company remained in the same building until 1937, when it moved to a big building. By 1950, there were over 200 franchise bottlers of the root beer, and eventually, in 1995, the Coca-Cola company acquired Bark's root beer. Bark himself died in 1943, and he has a mausoleum in the cemetery. Bud Steed wrote, Haunted Mississippi Gulf Coast, and in there he shares a story he was told in the 1980s when he was living in Biloxi. 
A young woman had a brother who was always getting into trouble while hanging with the wrong crowd. One evening, this group of thugs decided that they wanted to assault a young woman. They'd noticed while they were hanging out on the beach several nights in a row that a young woman cut through the graveyard on her way home. They decided she would be the perfect victim. They hid out behind some crypts and waited for the woman who did indeed make her nightly trek. They grabbed her and pinned her against a crypt while one of them rifled through her purse. Then they threw her to the ground as she screamed and began to hit her and tear at her clothes. Suddenly, one of the thugs screamed. What had happened is that a very large man appeared and he thrust his arm straight through one of the thugs. That guy fainted, apparently peed his pants, when he saw the arm through his body. The other two jumped to their feet and pleaded with the man to leave them alone, but he lunged at them. He quickly bounced back and forth between the men, beating them. The large man helped the woman to her feet, whispered in her ear. She kicked one of the thugs in the crotch and hurried away. And then the man hurled French curses at the three thugs on the ground. He then faded away before their very eyes. I like that story. Yeah, so at first you're thinking, oh, there's some guy who was walking by the cemetery, saw what was happening, ran in there to save the woman. Oh, no, he was a ghost. So he was physical enough to beat the crap out of these guys. I love that. I was thinking, actually, that it was going to be the young woman that was the spirit. I did, too, when I first was reading this. (laughs) They were going to try to jump her and figure out they couldn't grab her. Uh, Unfortunately, the woman who was telling the story about her brother, who had told the story to her, you would think you'd learn your lesson after this, right? No, he ended up trying to rob somebody who shot him. So he died being a criminal. But yeah, I was just like, wow, what a story. And he leaves these three guys on the ground. I mean, how do you explain that? <laughs> these three guys on the ground, one of them is just passed out with wet pants and the other two are <laughs> beat to a pulp. There are other spirits at the cemetery as well. One has been nicknamed the Preacher. This apparition is seen wearing a black suit and he carries a Bible. He appears out of nowhere and asks witnesses if they know the Lord. He sometimes breaks into a fire and brimstone sermon and then disappears. This happens only to people who are alone and usually at night. Bud had visited the cemetery with a friend named Dave and they were snapping pictures when Dave heard the sound of metal clinking right next to him and there was nothing metal around. Bud came over and said he felt as though something were standing there. A little while later, Dave felt burning on his arms and looked down to discover red marks on his forearm. The men also could have sworn that they saw the figure of a man standing beside one of the crypts when some lightning flashed as they drove out of the cemetery. Now off to Michigan for the Crouch Cemetery. This is maintained by Spring Arbor Township. This is at the corner of Reynolds and Horton Roads, and the haunting connected to this cemetery dates back to a gruesome multi-murder. Jacob Crouch was born in New York in 1809 and moved to Michigan in 1830. In 1837, he purchased land and started a farm and married Anna Bush in 1838. They had six children, Susan, Ethel, Brian, Dayton, Eunice, and Judson. By the time Jacob had turned 74 years old, his property was worth a substantial amount of money. He also had several head of cattle and property in Texas. There are many people who said that he was more than likely a millionaire. His wife, Anna, had died in 1859, just days after giving birth to the couple's son, Judd. Daughter Susan was older and had married a man named Daniel Holcomb, and so she offered to raise Judd. On the night of November 22, 1883, Jacob Crouch, his daughter Eunice, who was eight months pregnant, her husband, Henry White, and a Pennsylvania cattle buyer named Moses Polly were all murdered in their beds at the Crouch homestead. All of them had been shot to death. By the time the sheriff arrived, the crime scene had been trampled. As you know, people have to come and be looky-loose. Two farm workers, Julia Reese and George Bowles, who lived on the property, had not been shot, and they were immediately looked at for the murders. 
Bowles had made the discovery of the murders. He told police he had heard shots and fighting, so he climbed in a trunk and hid until morning. He was only 16, so you could see why he was a bit scared and just hid. Reese had no idea anything had happened and was preparing breakfast when neighbors burst in after Bowles ran and told them what had happened. Can you imagine? She's just in there thinking she's making breakfast for everybody. They're all dead. Bowles and Reese were arrested but let go due to a lack of evidence. Then the police started to look to the family. Jacob was a gruff and ornery man and quite stingy. It was said that he was planning to write Susan, her husband Daniel, and Judd out of the will. And they apparently knew that and took action before that happened. Judd and Daniel were charged with the murders on March 8, 1884, but not Susan because she was already dead. She had killed herself by eating rat poison on January 2nd, 1884, so she wouldn't have to testify. Wow, what a way to choose to take yourself out. Oh, good grief. No. At the end of Daniel Holcomb's trial, the jury found him not guilty. Judd was never brought to trial, and the case remains unsolved to this day. And perhaps this is why members of the Crouch family are at unrest. Jacob was buried at Crouch Cemetery, but his daughter Eunice was buried at St. John's Cemetery. It is said that she rises from her grave there and travels the few miles to Crouch Cemetery every November 22nd to meet up with Jacob at his gravesite. People claim to hear the faint sound of crying, and some have seen a ghostly mist float around the tombstones until it stops at Jacob's grave. Then it disappears into the plot. So perhaps this is Jacob returning from visiting his daughter as well. And then we have the St. Omer Cemetery Witch Grave. And this is a really weird headstone in Illinois. This is located in the town of St. Omer, which is now a ghost town. The headstone is the Barnes Monument, and it has a witch legend connected to it. The story goes that Carolyn Barnes was a witch, and she had been hanged for her crimes. This bit of lore probably got started because of Carolyn's death date on the monument, February 31st, 1882. Now, of course, we know there's never been any such date because at most, February has 29 days. People say that this isn't some kind of error made by the sculptor, but rather on purpose because it was said that a witch could rise again on her death date. If that date doesn't happen, then there isn't an issue. There are other weird things about the monument, which not only marks Carolyn's final resting place, but her husband Marcus and his parents Granville and Sarah. The monument is a ball atop a pyre, and people claim that the ball represents a crystal ball and it glows on moonless nights. I mean, it is kind of weird. I could see you putting a ball on top of a column, but on a pyre? It just, yeah. I was like, that's really weird. The other graves in the cemetery are oriented east to west, but this one faces north and south. People claim that it's hard to take a picture of the monument and that photos don't turn out. And this has become a spot for secret rituals. I mean, you look at it and it's like, why is that sitting on top of a log that's over on its side? A ball like that. It's just, it's clearly a fire. And so you can't think that the, the family had wanted that design that way. So did the town? I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't imagine it was the family's choice. I don't know. It's just very, very strange. So that's, I think, all that exists of St. Omer is this cemetery. And yeah, it's got February 31st on there. And a lot of people say it probably was just an error. The family had died off by the time Carolyn had died. She was the last one. And since the town had basically been almost abandoned at that point, there was nobody there to correct it. But I don't know. I I doubt it was an error. If that's the, (laughs) the lore in terms of a witch not being able to return... 
I have to assume if you are an engraver, you make sure you got everything right. It's just like being a tattoo artist. You know, you make sure everything is on there right because this is something permanent. This is a ball that has a whole bunch of stuff on it. So to try to fix that, I don't know how you'd do it. These were some interesting cemeteries with interesting burials and some creepy, strange experiences. Are these six cemeteries haunted? That That is for for you to decide. decide. More cemeteries for us to check out. Love our cemeteries. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. If you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We heard from Alex who wanted to send us a suggestion. And this is King's Island Amusement Park, which is quite the haunted place. And I let Alex know we had actually done that as a bonus cast. And I'm thinking... Since Alex asked about it, that we will go ahead and release that out onto the regular feed. So be watching for a bonus of King's Island, and it will give you all a taste of what patrons are getting over on the feed as well. So thanks for sending that to us, Alex. We'd had one of our listeners, and he's also an executive producer, Ed, had gone to the Whaley House and gotten to go through it and everything. Well, then we heard from Matthew as well, and he was by the Whaley House. So a lot of people have been checking out the Whaley House lately. Christina had messaged us over on Instagram, and I wanted to share this. I thought it was kind of an interesting question that she asked us. She heard us mention that we're Christians and talking about the Bible and stuff like that, and she had grown up in a Christian household, and she also grew up in a home where her dad was in the funeral business. So she's kind of dealt with both Christian death, that kind of thing. She's had some experiences of paranormal activity in her parents' home, in her home that she has with her husband, and it's just interests the heck out of her. So she was asking, you know, since the Bible forbids talking to the dead, how do you balance that since we do go out and do some ghost hunting? So I'm just going to read to everybody exactly what I had written. I said, hey, Christina, thanks so much for listening. We are indeed Christians. So that is a tough one. We do struggle a bit with that. It's one thing to capture an EVP randomly and another to ask questions looking for an answer. Partly for us is the fact we are skeptics. Are we really talking to anything? What exactly is it if we are? Some of our most profound experiences are things that just happen when we're sitting or standing somewhere. Kelly, for us, it's getting touched, seeing a shadow figure or an anomaly. These aren't things that we've asked for or whatever, seen them without asking them to show themselves. Those happen regardless of intent. And that's really it for us. What is our intent? We aren't seeking advice or info on the future. We aren't looking to have spiritual forces work for us. Kelly can't help that she's sensitive. And who doesn't talk out loud to a dead loved one on occasion? What exactly is prayer? We certainly don't have the answers. We're just careful, prayerful, and go in mostly with the intent to enjoy the history around us. And I thanked her for asking us. And then she shared an experience that she'd had that I thought was really cool to share with everybody. My grandfather died two days before my birthday in April of 2018. Randomly, about a year and a half later, I went into the room he passed away in for the first time since he passed, and I had the most unique feeling. It literally felt like an internal hug around my heart, all warm and fuzzy, and I heard him say, I love you. I've not heard from him since, but it was a lovely moment. Yeah, it does sound very lovely. Jen wrote us sending a suggestion of a place, uh, Punta Gorda, which is here in Florida, and we might take a road trip down there to check out some of the haunted stuff there, and they have a cemetery. She said, I think she said there's three cemeteries in the area. Posing a question in email since I'm too chicken to do it in the Facebook group. She's an introvert, even behind the computer. What are your thoughts on paranormal activity increasing or decreasing before or after severe weather events? 
I feel like some of it decreased in our home quite a bit after Ian came through. Renovations can often stir things up, but I wonder about events causing damage and forcing repairs. I don't know. That's a very interesting perspective. It is a really good question. I'm trying to think back to like Hurricane Katrina. I feel like a lot of people said that the spiritual activity kind of died off a little bit after Hurricane Katrina. And some people had wondered if it was because so many people had moved out of the city for a long period of time. Perhaps. That there wasn't like the spiritual energy of the living to feed off of. So I could see why there might be a decrease if you have a lot of people who aren't in the area. I mean, obviously, these are not material things, so the weather's not going to affect them. So it does make you wonder. I mean, we know that sometimes spirits still haunt a location even when a home has been torn down. They still hang with the property. Right. You would think, since there's going to be all this renovating going on, that that would spike the spiritual activity. That's what I would imagine as well. I don't know. It's a really good question. I wonder what... uh, some of the listeners thoughts are on that. And if you guys have had like storms in your area and notice that there's been a downtick. Right. Any personal experiences, please share. And we've always thought that, you know, if you're in the middle of a raging thunderstorm, the activity should be off the hook, right? Because you've got all this stuff. But when we were at the Velisca Axe Murder House, I don't believe that we had an uptick. I mean, they had one of the worst thunderstorms they've had in a long time when we were there and it raged pretty good out there. And I mean, the whole sky would just light up from the lightning. It was pretty scary. It was incredible. (laughs) And we didn't feel like the activity kicked up or anything during that. No, I mean, we were still getting interactions. But but it wasn't wasn't, more. Yeah, no, it didn't increase. Yeah, interesting stuff. I just love all this paranormal stuff. That's why we keep pursuing it, because there's just so many questions, so few answers. This is true. Well, thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Jamie Burcham. We're going to be putting you in a chest tomb. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. You can find Hysterigo's Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora. Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. His mess is messed. He's messed well known. <laughs> his most well known piece of art is American Gothic, featuring an aged farmer and his daughter. I had no idea that that was his daughter. I always thought it was like a husband and wife team or something. Many people do. The final destination for most. Most? For most people. Most people. On this earthly plane. The final destination for most on this earthly plane is a graveyard. Uh, yard. You sound like you're kind of ready for the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs>
as a society, we have given this final end in the sum as a society. I'm not sure if it's robot or baby you're speaking over there. Are you AI? Where's Kelly? Give her back. When summer's throned on high and the world's warm beast is in Verdu. Verdu? Verdu? Verdu. Verder? Verder? Better look it up. <laughs> and the world's warm beast is in verdu dressed. Beast? Breast. <laughs> Sorry, beast breast. They're the same, aren't they? Tatas. <laughs> now I'm envisioning something with teeth and most men wouldn't want to go near it. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Good grief, you're terrible. <laughs> the monster boob. <laughs> <laughs>